0: I was in high school when I first explored the Pepper sauce cave system uh, of the Coronado National Forest. It's south of Oracle, Arizona, about seven to eight miles back in the mountains there. The cave includes a mile of mapped passageways winding through uh, the heart of the Sa- Santa Catalina Mountains. On that first trip as a teenager, I was curious when we arrived, I was curious about why our group leader had brought so many large containers of water. It seemed odd. You know, we had some water containers that we had brought, but it seems strange, all these big, big containers. After several hours hiking through and pressing through and squeezing through and crawling through And wriggling through the often wet, clay-like, pepper sauce mud, the reason for all the water containers became abundantly clear. Emerging from the cave, we were caked on, baked on, filthy. (laughs) Seriously, we were just filthy. I can assure you. None of the adults who drove that day wanted us climbing back into their vehicles in that soiled condition. Speaking of soiled conditions, look with me at Leviticus 16 this morning. How's that for a transition? You like that? (laughs) Look with me at Leviticus 16. As most of you know, Leviticus 16 was one of the chapters that we looked at last week in our Bible reading plan. I'd like to focus in this chapter, I'd like to focus on verses 15 and 16. So drop down to those. These verses here won't make much sense to you unless you understand that chapter 16 contains God's instructions for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Now, if you grew up with a Jewish friend or you have uh, been exposed to, uh, you know, in the media or through whatever means you've been exposed to other religious practices and observances, then you've probably heard of Yom Kippur. Right? You, you've heard of it. Maybe somebody had a day off of school because they were Jewish and celebrating that. These are the instructions for Yom Kippur straight out of God's Word. And in Hebrew, that, that term, Yom Kippur, it means Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement. This once a year ritual, which took place in that portable Israelite temple called the Tentive Meeting or the Tabernacle, This once-a-year ritual is summarized in verse 34. Drop down real quick to the end of that chapter, verse 34. And this shall be a statute forever for you. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. There it is, a little summary of why this should be observed, why this should be obeyed what its purpose was for the Day of Atonement. So Yom Kippur was the only time during the year in which a person could enter beyond the veil into the back room, as it were, of the tent of meeting, into a space, into a compartment called the Most Holy Place, or as is sometimes treated. Translated the holy of holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And only the high priest of Israel could enter on that one day of the year. But he must not come empty handed. He must not come empty handed according to what God had revealed. Five animals were prepared for this ritual. For this day, one bull, two rams, and two goats. This is what we read after the bull had been killed and its blood sprinkled inside the holy place. Verse 15 says this. Then he shall kill the goat. This is the priest. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil, beyond the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. The blood of the bull was for himself, the priest. He will do this with the blood of the goat, as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat this mercy seat as a sidebar this mercy seat was on top of the ark's lid the lid of this ark of the covenant this box, this chest there was a lid and on top of that was something called the mercy seat it represented the throne of God. Verse 16, thus the priest shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. Now, let's stop there. To appreciate this very bizarre scene, this (laughs) strange scene, uh, we need to understand both the ugliness and the beauty here. Both the ugliness and... And the beauty that we find here. The ugliness is clear from the double emphasis that we just heard in verse 16. We read about their uncleannesses. In that final phrase of verse 16. Do you see that? Earlier in the same verse, we find an answer if we were to ask whose uncleannesses are being referred to. Well, earlier in the verse, we read about the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. The book of Leviticus is an interesting book, isn't it? It's a strange book. The book of Leviticus is like God's classroom. It's his classroom for teaching the people, these people that he had redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Leviticus was his classroom, a a, a session of instruction. It contained the instruction for teaching the people about three things, about sin, sacrifice, and sanctification. That's the purpose of this book. Sin, sacrifice, and sanctification are all being described here. While this verb to make unclean or to defile the verb form appears just a few times in the book of Genesis, chapter 34, when it talks about their sister being defiled, Uh, is that Tamar, I believe, or, or Dinah, Dinah being defiled, That's the reference. That's the one use of the word there. But before that, aside from that verb form, this word in Hebrew does not appear until this book. This word in its many forms about this word unclean does not appear until the book of Leviticus. And when it appears in the book of Leviticus, it appears more times than every other reference in the Old Testament combined. So, you know, if you want to understand what this word means, the epicenter is Leviticus. We have to be here. We have to go here. And Leviticus is very concerned with this word. Unclean. What does it mean to be unclean? Take a look here on the screen. What does it mean to be unclean? It's a way of talking about our spiritual Corruption or impurity in light of a perfectly pure God. Let me say that again. What does it mean to be unclean? This word that is occurs so often in this book of Leviticus, it's a way of talking about our spiritual corruption, our spiritual impurity in light of a perfectly pure God. The main focus of this concept is moral and spiritual uncleanness. That is, we are stained as human beings. We are polluted. We are soiled and sullied by our corruption, our corrupted moral and ethical choices. We see that every day. We live in the midst of that filth every single day. And not only moral, moral and spiritual. What does that mean? More fundamentally, We are corrupted by our choices in terms of worship. This is what the Old Testament reveals to us about what it means to be unclean. This idea of spiritual corruption is powerfully pictured in 2 Chronicles 29.16 where that same word for uncleannesses is used to refer to the false Idols removed from Yahweh's temple under the reforms of King Hezekiah. And so when they brought out all of these altars and Asherah poles and these false, these articles, these objects that were used to venerate, to worship false gods within the temple of the living God. That's how corrupt God's people had become. When they brought all of these things out because King Hezekiah said, no more, we're, we're, we're going back to our God. We're following his path. When they brought these things out, they were referred to as uncleannesses. And then the prophet Ezekiel picks up this same word and he uses this same word to talk about Israel's idolatry. That is the people's spiritual unfaithfulness to God with false gods. Moral and spiritual corruption. But the word unclean is also used, like so much of what we find in Leviticus, it's used as a symbol functioning teaching tool, right? Symbol laden teaching tool. Just like shed animal blood, right? A real thing, but it represented something else, didn't it? It was symbolic. It was a real thing, but it was symbolic of something. Shed animal blood in the book of Leviticus is used to represent the death of the guilty worshiper. The one who brings the animal is symbolically represented as pain with their own life. Because of the wages of sin. That's how so many things in the book of Leviticus function as representations, as symbols. Because of that, like animal blood, we find things like sickness and semen and menstruation and leprosy and a corpse and a carcass and even eating certain kinds of animals. All of these things were used to visualize our moral and spiritual taint. God chose to use them as Pictures for the people pictures of corruption pictures of being soiled pictures of pictures of pollution. In some sense there's an emphasis on the contagiousness of the taint, the infectiousness of the taint. Again, these are all representations of human. Sin, moral and spiritual corruption. Now stop and think for a moment. Think of the image that I presented at the outset. Teenage me, covered from head to toe in dirt and grime. Covered by the mud from that cave where I, hidden from the light, Deliberately crawled through the muck and mire, unconcerned about my filth, about the filth around me, and the stain that it left on me. Brothers and sisters, friends, that's every single one of us, morally and spiritually. That's the testimony of God's word about the human condition. Ugliness, right? Ugliness. That's what we see here. But here's something beautiful from the same passage. Ugliness and beauty. Here's something beautiful. And I mean really, really beautiful. Not only do our verses speak about atonement. Did you see that? But they do so in terms of a mercy seat. What kind of seat? A mercy seat. And they do so in light of a tent of meeting. A tent of meeting which dwells with the people in the midst of. Of their uncleannesses. Mercy. Meeting. Dwells. This entire Levitical arrangement. This whole complex system. Of priests. And sacrifices. And seasonal celebrations. And ritual purity. All of it was meant to do one thing. One thing. What was being cleansed by the blood here, the sprinkled blood, what was being purified of our taint, of our corruption, were the very objects, the very means by which God could dwell with them, Because he wants to dwell with us. Have you heard anything as beautiful as that? If we understood what this says about our corruption, about our uncleannesses, we would be staggered by this idea that our God wants to dwell with us, that he wants to be among us. Everything put together, every system, every idea, every regulation, every precept, every cleansing, the whole process, every animal throat slit was for this one purpose that God might be with us. That we might be with him. As God would tell them 10 chapters later in this book, take a look. And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. We see that three-part promise all throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes it's expressed in two parts, right? That point us to the three parts. I shall be, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Sometimes it just says that. But the whole formula is, I will dwell among you, or I will walk with you, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. We see it powerfully here in Leviticus 26.12. So as bizarre as Leviticus is at times, and if you've been reading it, you know it's, it's odd. If you've read it before, it's very strange, to, especially to new eyes. As bizarre as Leviticus is at times, its ultimate aim is absolutely beautiful. It's to enable unclean men and women like us to dwell with our perfectly pure creator. And there is nothing better than that. It's the very thing for which we were made. Amen? Amen? To dwell with the one who made us. That is the aim of this book. And this was accomplished through sin offerings meant to purify. And on the day of atonement in Yom Kippur, it was accomplished through sin offerings meant to purify the tent and the holy objects themselves. And then the sins of all the people were placed symbolically on a goat who was sent far away from the camp into the desert. Sin sent far away from God's dwelling place among them. Do you see the the imagery there? The goat bore the blame, but he escaped death. It's where we get our English word, scapegoat, right? This is it. This is where it comes from, the Bible. Finally, burnt offerings were sacrificed on Yom Kippur for both the guilt of the people and the guilt of the priests. Why a burnt offering as well? Burnt offerings were the ones that were fully consumed. No meat was eaten out of that. It was fully consumed. It was meant to indicate a life for a life. That was the picture here. In light of what sinners deserve from a just God, it represented a life for a life. But that's an important word, isn't it? Represent. I've mentioned it a few times already. It represented, these things represented. Though God had designed this system to deal with human uncleanness for the nation of Israel, for his people of the Old Covenant, we know that it was ultimately a symbolic system. It was a teaching tool. As the author of Hebrews would later declare, take a look. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It had to be symbolic. It couldn't actually affect anything. A goat can't die for your sins. A bull can't take your place. Its life cannot cover your life. So how would our sin actually be atoned for? How could those unclean, polluted, corrupted, sullied, and soiled, how could we actually be cleaned, cleansed? What lessons were these teaching tools conveying? And for what were they preparing us? Or to put it another way, to what was all of this symbolism pointing? Pointing. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament gives us this remarkable explanation in chapter 9 of his message. Take a look on the screen. Speaking about the ministry, the, the, the priestly ministry in the most holy place, in the tent of meeting, and later in the permanent temple in Jerusalem, the, the writer here reminds us that priests go regularly into the first section Of the of the of the tent performing their ritual duties, but into the second section, the holy of holies, only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood. Which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Their intentional sins were covered throughout the year as they regularly went to make sacrifice at the temple. Every single day, sacrifices were occurring at the tent or at the temple later on. But Hebrews is talking about exactly what we're talking about, right? Hebrews in the New Testament is talking about Leviticus 16, what's described here. He goes on, the author of Hebrews, verse 11 of chapter 9. But when Christ appeared, when the Messiah appeared, Jesus, he appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, different tent, better tent, bigger tent, the real tent, he entered once for all into those pure, real, holy places. What the tent just represented. He entered once for all, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And what was the result? Thus securing an eternal redemption. A rescue that would last forever. That would be in effect forever and ever and ever. For if the blood of goats and bulls sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That's how they functioned under the old covenant, right? They were meant to set apart. They were meant to, to communicate this idea of following God and being set apart for him. If those things functioned in that way in the old covenant, under the old covenant. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. How much more will that sacrifice purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God? The living God. Verse twenty four for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. You see, he's he's emphasizing this, he's repeating that. He wants it to be perfectly them to be perfectly clear what was happening at the cross, what really was taking place. You didn't see a tent with your eyes, you didn't see the tabernacle from the Old Testament, you didn't see the temple that stood across the, the the valley there in Jerusalem. But something was happening. Something astounding was happening. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And it said before, how did he come? He came with blood. The blood of an animal? No, his own blood. He did not appear to offer himself repeatedly. Verse 25, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then, if that was the case, Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. If he was just one of those kinds of priests, he would have done it over and over and over again. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Wow. Wow. Is that stunning? There it is. Truly amazing how the author of Hebrews helps us understand everything that was happening, what every all these lessons were truly pointing to in the person and work of Jesus Christ specifically through his death on the cross, the lessons of Leviticus, lessons about sin, about sacrifice, about sanctification were finally fulfilled. Does that mean our uncleanness was also taken away? I mean really taken away? The answer is a glorious and resounding yes. Yes. Listen to how the New Testament writers speak about our uncleanness and what Jesus did for unclean people like you and me. Jesus reminded his Jewish listeners about the symbolic purpose of Leviticus's lessons. He did. He did this when he clarified in Mark 7. Take a look. He clarified that there is nothing outside of a person, right? Nothing outside of a person like touching a dead body or having leprosy or in this case here in the context, eating certain foods. Nothing that by going into that person can defile him. What does that mean? It means make him unclean. For from within, not on the outside, from within, out of the heart's Of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Remember there, murder, adultery, what did Jesus say? Right, The anger, the hatred inside of you, the lust inside of you. These make you just as guilty as committing the acts. You are guilty of these things. So he's speaking of these things out of the hearts. We know what adultery looks like in real life. We know what it looks like in the heart as well, according to Jesus. He speaks of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus says all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. That's what makes you unclean. Moral and spiritual corruption But amazingly, the Apostle Peter would later remind the leaders of the church in Jerusalem that God had done a radical work through Christ. He had done this radical work not only among Jewish believers, but also among non-Jews like us. He reminded them, take a look in Acts 15 verse 9. That God made no distinction between us and them. Having done what? Cleansed their hearts by faith. Have you heard more beautiful words than that? Cleanse your heart by being a good person. No, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Cleanse your heart by going to church every Sunday. Nope, that's not what it says. Cleanse your hearts because you read this many Bible passages or gave this much money to people in need. Doesn't say that, does it? It says, Cleanse their hearts by faith. Faith in Jesus. We are cleansed. We are purified by faith. And God has made that accessible, that cleansing to all people, not just the Jewish people, not just the descendants of the ancient Israelites. He has made it available to all people, this cleansing. According to Jesus, this is the very thing we need, right? Cleansing of the hearts. Our hearts need to be different. It's what makes us unclean. It's the true source of our uncleanness. Our hearts need to be cleansed. How was this cleansing accomplished? Look, look at, look at this passage. Like the author of Hebrews, the apostle Paul points us to The universe, universe universe-altering work of Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes. He's encouraging husbands here, but look at what he says about us, all of us. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. That's on the cross, isn't it? He gave his life for her that he might sanctify her. Oh, there's Levitical language. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. If you embrace the truth about Leviticus, about being unclean, this is an amazing statement. Cleanse By the washing of water with the word. He did this so that he might present the church, his bride to himself in splendor. This is talking about us. In splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Look at all those synonyms there for clean, being spiritually clean, being pure, he did this. Christ did this for us. And so, brothers and sisters, what is available to us today, this morning, what's distinct about us today here in this new covenant, not in that old, under that old covenant, but under this new covenant through Jesus, this is what is available with us to us. God dwelling with us. God dwelling with us in a way the Israelites never could have imagined. Now, through Jesus, we are the dwelling place of God. He's not simply dwelling among us. He's not simply in our midst. He's in us. He's dwelling in us individually and together. God is with us. He is dwelling within us. Jesus talked about my father and I coming and making our home in you. First Corinthians talks about you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, both corporately and individually. That Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, Ephesians 3 declares. Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Christ wants to come in and eat with us and be with us. We are that dwelling place. And he does this because those who were unclean have been made clean in Jesus forever. And his cleansing work will ultimately result, its fullest expression will be the presence of God In this universe, with us, in a full and forever kind of way. In a new heavens and a new earth. Listen to how the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible, listen to how it echoes the promise of Leviticus way back at the beginning of the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Wow, wow, what a huge picture we have of God's great work of redemption covering centuries, covering millennia that he has never wavered from. He has never slipped up. His work is being accomplished. Behold, I am making all things new, he says. But as we think about the reality, this reality of being unclean, right? If we accept this and say, okay, let's focus on this word. Uh, I was talking to my wife, and some of you I know have this practice. You adopt a word for the year, right? You grab a word and say, this is my kind of word for the year. I'm going to let, kind of think about it, meditate on it, look at, study God's word in relationship to it. It's going to be my guiding light. What if you were to get the word unclean? That was to be your word for 2023. I can promise you no one has that word unclean as their word of the year. How about we spend the next few minutes at least having it as our word of the morning? How about that? <laughs> Let's at least do that. Make this word our word of the morning unclean. As we think about that reality, that biblical, scripturally revealed reality of being unclean, how does it alter our thinking? How should it alter our living? We need to touch on two ways as we think about this. We need to touch on two ways in which the unclean, that's us, can be tempted. We who are unclean can be cleansed But we're often tempted in two different ways. Let me share these with you. First of all, take a look. Some are tempted to minimize their uncleanness. Some are tempted to minimize their uncleanness. What do I mean by that? I mean some of us want to believe that our moral and spiritual condition is more like a few stains on our shirts rather than our earlier image of being covered in mud from head to toe. Stains on your shirt are mistakes, aren't they? They're goof-ups to get a stain on your shirt. They might indicate clumsiness. They might indicate thoughtlessness. And they're visible enough that we have to admit to them and, and we want to find a way to clean them, mainly to avoid looking silly in public, right? So we go and get the the shout, we get the zout, we get the whatever to try to clean that. For some, this is what they hear when God's word speaks to them about being unclean. I have some stains on my shirt. I make mistakes. Sometimes I'm thoughtless. Sometimes I'm morally clumsy or spiritually clumsy. Unfortunately, this is what they have in mind when they respond to the gospel of Jesus. Of course, genuine believers can also struggle with this kind of minimizing of uncleanness. Over time, we begin to think think too highly of ourselves, don't we? And like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, we act like we are no longer sick and therefore we do not need the great physician. Are we cleansed? Yes. But apart from Christ, what are we? We're still those who struggle, right? Under that taint. And so if we if we lose a sense of where we came from, if you minimize the depth and the darkness of the pit from which you were pulled, it will affect your Christian life. It leads to pride, doesn't it? Even as Kevin said, the time that we gather here this morning, he prayed that we would learn and remember how needy we are, how much we need God this morning. When we minimize our uncleanness, That's exactly what we lose. The second temptation swings us to the opposite extreme. Take a look. Some are tempted to maximize their uncleanness. Allow me to explain that. Some feel so dirty, so stained, so corrupted, so soiled and sullied that upon hearing the good news about Jesus, even when it's clearly explained, they still believe that the sacrifice of Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, cannot truly make them eternally clean. For some, this keeps them from true faith. It's a barrier to true faith. But for others who become and who are truly genuine believers, this idea can be an ever-present temptation that rises up again. At times, they rest in the fact that Jesus has washed them clean, that they are truly forgiven, that they are truly free. But at other times... As feelings of filthiness creep in, as the volume of those accusations inside of them gets louder and louder and louder, they second guess his cleansing work. They think maybe I misunderstood something, maybe I ruined my chance, maybe I'm just too stained. What's important to note is that quite often these feelings are not based on what God has said but on the hurtful words of others. Words that cannot be shaken. Words that a person cannot get past. In some cases, those words were literally beaten into that person. Literally. Therefore, when hard and hurtful times that we've been through are not directly examined and addressed with the, go- with the comforts of the gospel, the lingering wounds inside of us can actually fight against the truth of the gospel on a daily basis inside of us. It can fight against that truth about what Jesus Christ has accomplished always working to undermine that truth and tear it down bit by bit. For others, if it's not a traumatic circumstance that emblazons and burns those words of others inside of us, words that continue to tempt us to think that we are unclean, stained and soiled and broken, corrupted, then maybe it's a, it's a particular sin Or a particular lifestyle that we once lived in. And because that lifestyle left a toll upon us, it continues to pop up and say, yeah, but remember when you did this? And remember when you were like this? And the enemy gets a hold of that and says, look around you. No one else used to do that. These are all pretty decent people. No one else once did those things. No one else once thought that way. No one else spoke those words or used their body like that. You're the one. You're the one. And if people knew, oh, if people knew what you did. Brothers and sisters, it's so important to note that both of these temptations to minimize or maximize our uncleanness, they result in maximizing our feelings and minimizing Christ's incomparable work. We have to grapple with that, don't we? We have to acknowledge that. That what we're really doing is maximizing our feelings and we're minimizing the finished work of Christ. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that just telling you that is going to flip the light switch inside of you. But we need to walk in truth, don't we? We need to allow the truth to be our firm foundation. We need to allow that truth to be the anchor for our soul. So that then we can fight with solid ground underneath our feet and say, you know what? This voice is coming up inside of me saying, uh, you think you're cleansed. You think you're clean. But guess what? You're not. We can come and say, you know what, voice, you know what, enemy, devil, you know what, whatever inside of me is saying this. Christ died once for all for sinners. Christ paid the debt. He cleaned me with his own blood. He purified me. The son of God did that for me. And so we continue to speak that truth into our lives, not minimizing Christ's work, but maximizing Christ's work. That is just letting it be what it is, which is incomparable. Seeing it clearly. And we minimize our feelings and say, my feelings will not rule the day. Because I know what my feelings are. They're like a roller coaster. They are hot and cold. They are ever-shifting sands inside of me, but the Word of God is my rock. It is truth. It is light. And it shines in my darkness even now. Through Christ, you can be clean. Cleansed fully. That's why it's so important when we talk about the work of Christ. It's so important to address these kinds of struggles. Whether minimizing or maximizing. We address these struggles quickly and vigorously in our lives. And maybe that's God's word to you this morning. Maybe you've been struggling but you have not been addressing it. You have not come and said I need to grab this bull by the horns. And actually look this struggle in the eyes. And get help for what I'm going through. How do we, how do we address these things? We do, th- do so through prayer. We do so through good conversations with brothers and sisters. We do so with godly counsel from a pastor, maybe an elder, maybe a mature brother and sister in Christ. And most importantly, we do so with the word of God. The word of the God who said, take a look, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Does God need to reason with you in that way this morning? He wants to. He wants to come and say, come here, come here. Think about this with me. Think about what I did through my son Jesus. Think about the debt that was paid. The cost exacted through his blood. Come, let us reason together about this work. So, brothers and sisters, friends, let us continue to embrace the reality of both our uncleannesses as sinners who need Christ, but also the reality of change that he makes possible. Titus chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 tells us that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy. His own mercy by the washing of regeneration. What does that mean? It's the washing of new birth. That washing And it's a renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us in just a few drops. That's not what it says. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. A flood of Holy Spirit cleansing (laughs) is what God has done through Jesus for you. We need to thank him, don't we? We need to thank him and give him glory this morning. We need to praise him for this amazing work of cleansing and ask and pray this morning that we truly would walk as a cleansed people. Or maybe for the first time, you will receive that cleansing this morning and God will help you to throw off the shackles of that uncle- those uncleannesses in you, that corruption. If that's what you desire, reach out in faith. This morning, talk to him now. Let me pray for all of us, no matter where we are.